Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast all about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. This is Friday, November 3rd, and my name is Alex and I'm joined today as I am each and every Friday by my dear friend, Marianne. Marianne, I won't ask how you're doing. Instead, I'll ask what's on your mind. Oh gosh, that's, that's, there's so much. We don't have enough time for that, but I can say I'm excited about this episode. Yeah, this is going to be an absolute banger. And one of the reasons why it's going to be so crushingly excellent, no pressure at all, is that we have our friend Becca Skutak here. Becca, hey, how are you? Hey, well, I was doing well until you gave that intro. Now I'm nervous. Well, you got to you gotta perform. This is a high pressure environment where we, no, it's not. We just have a lot of fun. But we do have a whip-ass show for everyone this week. We're going to talk a little bit about WeWork and the latest there. Then in deals of the week, we have Charlie, the Navigation Fund, and Al Manier. Finally, we're going to talk about big fintech rounds from around the world, and then founders and their perspective on breakups and how they should prepare for them early. Whew. But to start, WeWork is back on the show, and I'm proud to announce, Marianne, that WeWork is financially healthy, it's going to make it, and everything's looking hunky-dory. Oh, well, yeah, couldn't be further from the truth. We reported this week that WeWork is reportedly on the verge of filing for bankruptcy. Not a surprise. It's not been doing well for a while now. Been struggling to recover from having Adam Newman as a CEO and the COVID-19 pandemic. And, um, things have not been working in their favor. So we wrote in August about, uh, they kind of foreshadowed this, right? The, The company said, hey, we have all these doubts about being able to continue operating. And so we knew this was coming, but apparently they missed payments to their bondholders. They had like 30 days to pay. This was October 2nd, right? So now this, today's the 30th day. They got a, I think, a seven-day extension. Uh, I, it's a little hard to parse the, the SEC filings. Becca, I don't know if you've gone through them, but given the number of parties that have invested in this company and the way the debt is structured, all their SEC filings read like hell. <laughs> and so you have to kind of parse it pretty closely. But I think they're in like the grace, grace period right now. Uh, okay. So yeah, basically though, what this means is that we could be seeing them file for chapter 11 bankruptcy as early as next week. The stock tanked. It was already low. Um, as of Thursday morning, it was trading at about a dollar ten. Yeah. Now this, this is a company that was valued at $47 billion just a couple of years ago. According to Yahoo Finance, market cap is now fifty-eight million. Ooh. Which means it's very close to forty-seven million, which means it's close to nearly one one thousandth of its prior worth. That's a great outcome in this market, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's actually better than some, but I don't think anyone wakes up and says, What I really want to do is lose ninety-nine point uh, nine nine percent of my money. I guess we'll bring WeWork back on the show when it does file for Chapter 11, provided that all the reports bear out. The most important lesson that I learned, though, in this entire saga was that the Wall Street Journal has a whole bankruptcy desk. Oh, I didn't realize oh, that yeah. a whole, whole group of people just on the bankruptcy beat. Can you imagine? Do you like go to work in like a crow costume and like go at like companies that are in trouble and just scare them with your presence? Like imagine if you got called and you're like, hi, this is Becca. I'm from the Wall Street Journal bankruptcy reporting team. How's your business? I mean, you'd piss yourself. Oh, my God. I mean, I used to do a fair amount of distressed debt coverage with a few folks who used to exclusively cover bankruptcy. So I can confirm the lenders in that space are definitely different than the lenders who, you know, back companies who are doing well. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Are the terms really favorable if you have to go to one of those lenders of last resort? Do you get a good deal? 
I mean, you definitely get there's a whole range because of depends on who's like helping facilitate the deal and if you're tying it to equity and if there's like, oh, the company's not doing well, but a private equity firm's coming in that looks like it's going to, you know, raise it up from where it is. So definitely get a whole range down there. All right. Well, if you want to enjoy some distressed debt uh, economics, take a look at WeWork's bonds and then also uh, the state of Evergrande's uh, US dollar based debts. Lots of fun to be had there. But on a more positive note, Marianne, you have a deal of the week that I'm quite excited about because it feels a little bit counter narrative. Charlie and it's a neobank, right? Again, in this economy. Yeah. So Charlie, Charlie is interesting because we we have so many digital banks focused on the younger generation, right? The the Gen Z crowd. But Charlie is focused on Americans over the age of 62. And I think that's great. There's a lot of people over the age of 62. And their financial needs are different than the younger generation. So another interesting thing about Charlie is I, I wrote about them just six months ago. And writing about a raise and then six months later, another raise in 2023 has not happened a lot. You know, 2021, it happened all the time. But this was, this felt kind of unusual to me. So they raised a seed round or they announced it at the end of May, seven and a half million. This week, I wrote about them securing another 16 million, this time led by TTV Capital. And they also secured 7 million in debt financing. Especially interesting too, that it's not like an AI company raising <laughs> twice in one year. Right. I feel like the only other examples I can think of all fall in that camp. Right. The thing that I'm trying to sort out here is why this one is so beloved by investors when it feels like neobanks are out of favor. And Marianne, reading the piece about this, the company is going to lean on interchange as its main revenue source, Mm -hmm. which again, feels like a thing we talked about quite a lot a couple of years ago. And since then, it seems like that kind of that model has gone out of favor. People are now looking for more recurring payments built into fintech and so forth. So I don't know, from your perspective, does this add up? Well, I I think, again, it goes back to their target market. There's just not a lot of fintechs or digital banks focused on this demographic. And during the pandemic, this age group got more used to doing things online and using their mobile Mm -hmm. phones, not going into branches. So they're a lot lot more open to using a fintech or a digital bank than they might have been a few years ago. And their options are limited. So uh, according to the CEO, since they launched in May, they've already acquired several thousand customers in all 50 states. So so there, there seems to be early demand. And I guess that was encouraging. And they're looking to really incorporate anti-fraud features into their offering because this is a vulnerable, excuse me, vulnerable demographic. And, you know, people know it. They they target older people, seniors, the elderly. So what they're what they're hoping to do with this new capital is to incorporate these anti-fraud features to make it harder for a person in this age group to be a victim of fraud. And I think, you know, that if they can if they can do that well, that'll be big. Yeah. That was my main question with this because I'm just curious what that fraud protection and sort of those safeguards are going to be that they put into place mm-hmm. because you'd imagine like any bank that has clients in this demographic, which would probably be most of the main, well, probably all of the main ones here in the US, if like they haven't figured out a good way of stopping that. I am just curious because maybe the startup does have something like new or different from that, but I definitely was curious like how they're actually going to make a difference there. Yeah, they didn't get into specifics other than to say a, a suite of personalized fraud protections designed specifically for its target customers. So, uh, you know, I'll have to circle back with them as they roll those out maybe and see exactly what they meant. 
Yeah. A couple more notes about this that, uh, you know, I was thinking about just reading through the story. Older people tend to have more money, which means that if they pick your neobank, they probably bring over more total capital with them in general, is my guess. And in the current economy with higher interest rates, money deposits are worth more. And because Charlie pays out 3% per all reporting on deposits, there could be a reasonable spread there that they could profit on. So there is the possibility also there being some kind of net interest income, as they say, at play here as well. And that could make the whole overall operation just more exciting. But again, I don't want to state positively that the particular more elderly cohort that Charlie is targeting are more cash rich, but it does tend to be the case that older people have more money. So that's something very interesting. But I will say just given how much fraud we see with elders in the US today, definitely something that needs to be built, it feels like. So I'm Mm -hmm. just glad they're seeing some uptake and hopefully it can protect some folks from losing, frankly, the money they need to survive for their retirement years. Right. And I think, Becca, you you did a feature about elder tech not that long ago, right? So feels like there's there are more and more startups that are working toward providing technology for this this age group. No, definitely. And I think this would fall into the same camp as the one I wrote about in the sense of like working to build tech for people in this demographic that prevents them having issues as opposed to and this is nothing negative about other people in the elder tech category, but a lot of elder tech companies are focused on like, okay, this already happened to this individual. Here's a better mm. way to have them mend from it or take care of the issue kind of thing. But this, if they're building in that fraud protection from the start, like that's a way to help prevent the issue at all from the demographic. And I think elder tech's moving more in that direction. And I think that's a really good sign. Yeah, Preventative versus um, kind of like responsive reactive. tech. Re- yeah, reactive, even better. Scooting us along. Do you guys have any extra NVIDIA H100 chips laying around, maybe in the closet, <laughs> let me go hiding check. behind the cushions of the couch? Maybe. Let me go check. Define extra. Um, do you have any? And the answer is no. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the NVIDIA H100 is a particularly powerful chip. It is used by AI companies to train large models, and they're very expensive and hard to get a hold of because NVIDIA is only making so many of them. I presume they're ramping up production as fast as they can because it's the way to print money. But they are a very hot commodity in today's economy because everyone wants to train AI models and these are the chips to do it. So there is a new nonprofit that a billionaire has backed that has purchased a half billion dollars worth of these. Jed McCaleb, formerly of a couple of companies you've heard of, Stellar, Ripple, and an aerospace company put up the money for this. And it's a little complicated, but there is a nonprofit called the Navigation Fund that is going to have a for-profit subsidiary called Voltage Park. And that now owns this half billion dollars worth of NVIDIA H100 GPUs, which is 24,000 individual units. (gasps) And... Yeah, exactly. Prepping for this section, I was like, this is going to take a couple of paragraphs to get through. (laughs) And the gist is they want to provide access to this forthcoming cluster of H100 chips to companies that may not be able to buy them themselves because they can't get access or couldn't afford it. So earlier stage startups, research groups, and so forth. First, a question, Marianne. Do you know of any other time in which there was a for-profit subsidiary of a non-profit? No, that kind of threw me for a loop because it's usually the other way around. Right. So taking a positive spin on this, a for-profit 
Subsidiary could be a way to generate returns for the nonprofit parent and therefore make it more economically viable long term. The more uh, cynical take on this is that uh, Jed got a massive tax write off by giving money to the nonprofit and then gets to keep it alive by having a for profit subsidiary. Mm. He he he. You can kind of pick your own perspective as you will. Oh, but most of those for-profit companies don't even pay taxes. That's They've all figured out how to avoid it anyway. But you are probably right. Like, if I were to take the cynical take, I'd probably say the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but Voltage Park does intend to have a cluster live in three different American states. That'll be Texas, Virginia, and Washington, and does intend to reserve a portion of its kind of capacity, if you will, for early stage startups. So I, I think that's great because, you know, startups right now are at a disadvantage compared to a lot of the incumbents who may have a deal with NVIDIA or just the capital to pay um, mm-hmm. through the nose for these chips and letting companies get access to them is I think very much a net good. Yeah, I really, I do like that aspect of it. I think uh, reserving a portion of it for these earlier stage companies is awesome because it's not, not fair because we know that these bigger tech companies obviously have very, very deep pockets. And if, you know, if it's a matter of, of how much money you have or how quickly you can have access to something, then startups are always going to be probably, behind. And that's just feels like an unfair competitive advantage for the big tech companies. Guys, guess how much an H100 costs? Oh, how much? Like each? Yeah, each. Hmm. 30 racks. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, each one costs the amount of a small car. I was going to say my car. (laughs) Each one costs as much as Becca's car. I don't actually know what you drive. So. <laughs> it's a Subaru Crosstrek. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, oh, you so you have the, the svelte, more sporty Subaru. Oh, yes. I feel so sporty driving a Subaru. I mean, you should see my Subaru. It's the size of a minivan. <laughs> um, anyways, we're going to keep an eye on the Navigation Fund and Voltage Park because it's a really cool model. And I, I just, frankly, I can't wait until this production bottleneck on advanced GPUs for AI training eventually eases. But for now... This is going to be one way for companies that we cover to get access to computing power they otherwise might not be able to get or afford. Uh, but let's spin the globe, Becca. Let's talk about some other geos. Definitely. This week, I was super interested in a story written by one of our colleagues about a company in Egypt called Almanir. And for one, I'm always, it's a health tech company that is a platform for treating diabetes and obesity. And I, one, I'm just always super interested in health tech companies that are based outside the US just because our healthcare system is, you know, what it is. And a lot of other countries have taken different approaches and, you know, don't have their healthcare system set up as such like a capitalist conglomerate. So it's like, it's always just interesting to see what the approaches are. Um, The other thing that stood out here too, is that they raised 3.6 million in a seed round led by Global Ventures, which is a fund out of Dubai. And it's just interesting because it came out, the story came out on the same day as we heard news from a company here in the US, a startup called Calibrate, the CEO both stepped down and they're rapidly downsizing their consumer business. They were also focused on diabetes and as a part of that obesity, and they have seen their demand drop because they were prescribing those really trendy weight loss drugs like Ozempic. Ozempic obviously had a shortage this year. So people who were coming on the site to get that weren't able to. Um, So they're kind of lean into that side of treatment didn't really work out in their favor. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, like they, their problems come to light the same day, this company tackling the same issue raised money. And I'm just curious to see how it plays out to see if they end up 
having more success taking a different approach. Cause I, I feel, I don't know this, but I feel like just the, Oh, weight loss injection that feels very American solution. Then most other countries would take a different approach. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not so sure if the use cases for what Almanir is doing would be the same. So one would hope that it doesn't have the same outcome. I feel like here it got a little bit out of control with this Ozempic. Um, I had a friend who tried it. And then after she stopped, like rapidly gained a lot of weight and it was harder to get it off and only found out after the fact that that was something that is considered normal with this drug, which like, uh, hello, maybe you should have mentioned that beforehand. Uh, so right. anyway, diabetes it's not, it's is not a, a miracle. I mean, you know, but like the doctors, I feel you like gotta tell everyone else. Yeah. That. They need to be more responsible when just doling this out. But I think in the middle East, obviously the, what the story was saying and diabetes is fairly widespread and trying to come up with different ways to help people uh, manage it and, and deal with it. I think, could could work out really well. I thought it was interesting that one of the co-founders was so impressed with our healthcare system. That's what. Oh my gosh! Right, that's what she said. She was so impressed with our health healthcare system here in terms of how organized it was, and that she wanted to give patients in the Middle East the same sort of access to to like their records and things like that. That part is fair. At least we do have a better transparency. I think very very recently. There's better transparency than maybe some other healthcare systems. I think Becca's point, though, is a good one. And I think it'll be, you know, Almanir is, is so far doing pretty well, right? I mean, haven't they like seen a big jump in revenue? Already serving over 120,000 patients, like and have nine hospitals signed on. I mean, if anything, I've learned from found talking to people in the health tech space. And of course, maybe this is different outside the US as well. But getting hospitals to sign on board, even if they have the budget for it, even if they like what you're doing, is still incredibly difficult. So them being raising a seed round, raising a small or seed round, nothing wrong with that, but shows they don't need more money, which is not a bad thing. And already having that many people signed on and that many hospitals like in their orbit, like that's pretty good. Yeah, it was they reported a doubling of their business volumes and revenue numbers within the past year. I mean, that's the kind of thing we want to see from startups. So, you know, given that growth rate, I'm not shocked that they raise more capital. Um, it's just fun to see a business that kicked off in ophthalmology end up expanding as much as this one has and great mm-hmm. to see capital available um, in its local-ish geography, power business in the area. This wasn't like an American investor airdropped in for this latest round. I, yeah. I like to see more flywheel effects outside of the best known startup hubs. Gives me hope. There's also women at the helm. Yes, exactly. Two uh, female co-founders. And I think, and you raised a good point, Alex, I started, she started, one of them got the idea for it because, you know, people who have diabetes, it can impact their vision. And that's when she kind of realized, I guess, the importance of it. And one of the things that they're working on is planning to launch patient customized treatment and nutrition plans. Uh, so, you know, if they can continue in that direction and not maybe learn from what happened here with Ozempic, then there could be a lot of potential. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a very short break. But when we do go back, we're talking about international fintech rounds in the nine figure range. It's going to be great. We'll be right back. 
Marianne, one thing I know that you love is a big venture capital round, especially in the fintech area. And you have been just destitute and bereft and barren from having these <laughs> deals to talk about. And yet they seem to have come back with a vengeance. What's going on? Yeah, this week was was kind of an anomaly, I guess, in this year that we've we've had. We saw at least three, there may have been more, nine-figure fintech funding deals. And I reported on one of them. It was a Brazilian fintech called QI Tech that landed $200 million in a round led by General Atlantic. They're an infrastructure company or a banking as a service platform. They actually shared revenue numbers, which as we all know, is is not very common. <laughs> and they have they were bootstrapped for a few years too, for like three years before they raised their first external round of funding in 2021. So I always, I really enjoy seeing that companies that, that don't raise money for a while and then they kind of just really prove their model and, and what they're doing. And then they start bringing in the capital rather than vice versa, right? Which is so often what we what we see where companies raise a lot of money and then ultimately either prove or don't prove that they've actually got a viable model. But QI Tech raised the, the 200 million. They reported 21.2 million in net revenue for the first half of the year. They said that was up 89% compared to the same period mm. in 2022. They're not the only ones. Tage, who was just on fire this week, also wrote about Tabby, a buy now, pay later platform in the Middle East that also raised, let's see, $200 million at a valuation of one and a half billion. And before we talk more about that, because I do have some thoughts on that, uh, Next Insurance also raised, let's see, $265 million. I don't think they shared valuation, but they were last valued at $4 billion. Wow. Okay. So let's take these in order. Uh, first of all, banking as a service, something that we heard so much about. Back in the 2021 era, it seems to have gotten a little bit quieter since then. But the idea here, Marianne, is that offering a tool set that allows other companies to bake fintech and banking style products into their own stuff mm-hmm. seems to be, given this particular round, that there's still demand in the market for adding more fintech goodness to other products. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's what QI Tech does. allows a company to act like a bank and offer financial products to its customers employees or suppliers, for example, um, they noted like a telecom company might want to offer payroll loans to its employees. So that telecom could partner with QI and then kind of act like a bank. So yeah, they're a B2B company. And you know, they're not the only ones. There was Pismo that was a Brazilian payments yes, infrastructure company that, ra- that had raised nine figure round, I think 2021. And they got acquired by Visa this year for a billion dollars in cash. It was a billion in cash. Mm-hmm. You know, just, just a billion. Yeah, you know, that's it. Just a flat B. Cash. So, I mean, cash. Brazil, you know, in the infrastructure space, is, that's pretty impressive, I think. I mean, we've all just become inured to billion dollar exits. And I will always look back and remember the day that Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars and how everyone spent several weeks trying to contextualize that figure into numbers people could understand. Like that's the same thing as 37,000 stands or whatever it was we were doing at the time. And now we look at that and we go, oh, a billion, nice. Right. Venture capital funds have gotten bigger. It's true. No, it's true. It's true. Um, And and then I wanted to comment about Tabby because I know when we were uh, preparing for this, I I expressed surprise that a buy now, pay later startup would be raising this much money because here in the U.S., I mean, we're not we're not seeing that for sure. I mean, we're seeing a lot of the buy now, pay later companies somewhat struggling. But then as I, I read further into the story, Tage really explained it. 
Unlike the US and Europe, the Middle East is different. And so Tabi operates um, mostly in like Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Kuwait. They don't have access to credit the same way we do here. So it's, it's different. It's not so much as this luxury add on. It's more like here, it's kind of a convenience, but there it's more, it's more of an essential is how he worded it. So I thought that was really interesting. And it helps explain why there's more demand. And this is doing, you know, so much better than we would think. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like one of the big arguments I've heard here against buy no pay later, and this is exclusively anecdotal evidence from like people I'm friends with, is they're like, well, why would that be different than just putting it on my credit card? And it's like, well, in some ways it's not. Like it isn't that much different if you're going to pay by a credit card anyway. It's like you are buying it now to pay it later. Mm -hmm. And based on how many cards are, it's like you don't have to pay them all off at once or pay the whole balance. But it definitely makes a lot more sense to have a model like this if people don't have access to that already. Yeah. And a couple of other things Tage pointed out. So because they don't have as much credit card debt, the consumers there are not as overstretched financially. So they're less likely to get in over their heads by doing buy now, pay later. And then also there, the regulations he reported have come fairly early on in the market. So like in Saudi Arabia, there's already a buy now, pay later permit. And then also the company claims that they really are trying to be responsible, which they all do, right, in terms of checking for customers' ability to pay so they're not lending to consumers that really aren't able to borrow. I just realized mm-hmm. how dumb the phrase buy now, pay later is because it's literally just a description of the word debt. So mm-hmm. I think we should call all checkout solutions now, buy now, pay now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Give them a fancy acronym, double the valuations, off we go. No, the credit card thing was very interesting. But like looking at these three rounds, we have banking as a service, we have BNPL, and then we have uh, an InsureTech play. It feels like 21, baby. Exactly. It feels like we've gone back in time. Uh, But what I suspect is actually happening here is these are the companies that are probably in much better financial shape than a lot of the players we saw raise a lot of money a couple of years ago. And honestly, if you look at the valuations that are resulting from these rounds, uh, for example, Tabby at 1.5 off a $200 million round, that probably would have been three in 2021. Mm-hmm. And so it feels like, yes, they're able to raise capital, but they are also having to pay for that in a bit more dilution than they would have before. So at first I was looking at this, like, what the fuck is going on? And now I'm like, okay, these are probably the winner companies at lower valuations. So it seems that venture has corrected to a more reasonable point, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. These are also companies building in spaces that they can point to successes in, in other markets. I mean, like, yeah, like Klarna's had to slash their valuation and they don't just do buy now, pay later. But if you're building in that space, I mean, your company becoming the Klarna of the Middle East or something like that is not a bad outcome. Not at all. You know, like, so I feel like some of these companies raising large rounds in this case, the ones we're talking about today, even though it's like, sure, the buy now, pay later space, like we have our thoughts about it from like the American consumerist lens. But I don't know, like these all have, proven that they work in other markets. So definitely not the most surprising that they would see success, if, especially if there's less competition where they are too. Yeah. Also, I want to say that I think that's an even better point than I initially thought because I just pulled up the numbers and a firm down from its peak valuation is still worth more than $6 billion. And Klarna was worth like eight. And just to throw in one more fact that we've mentioned on the show before is that when we looked at Klarna's H1 23 performance, the numbers were all kind of moving in the right direction. So it does appear that even though Klarna had to take the haircut of all haircuts, it was nigh decapitation, frankly, 
it's doing fine. You know, it's going to be okay. It's going to get there. And right. so I, maybe investors are just a little bit more confident now that the, the numbers have pointed uh, north versus south. Let's pivot, though. And instead of talking about products and markets, take a quick look at the world of founders because they tend to uh, be pretty important, I think it's fair to say, in the startup world. But Becca, you've recently written about how sometimes founding pairs, founding trios, founding quartets uh, don't make it all the way through as a group. Yes. And talking about founding teams breaking up is something that when I started talking to investors, they were like, oh, this is so common. This could literally be up to like 50% of founding teams don't end up staying together throughout the time. It's just the big difference is a lot of times breakups are pretty seamless. Like, oh, if you have two co-founders, one doesn't really feel like building it anymore, happy to like stay on as an advisor, take another job, give back some equity. Like it's one of those cases where the majority of these breakups is generally pretty clean and not super interesting. But then of course, some aren't. Some are messy, some are lawyers fighting lawyers, and some can really, those kind of scenarios can really impact a startup to come, not just, oh, legal fees and costs. But if your co-founder leaves and they don't, you guys don't have something in place about what percentage of equity they can keep if they exit the company at that time, you'll end up sometimes with this whole chunk of equity on the cap table that new investors have to work around. And many investors just will not invest if they see that sort of quote unquote dead weight on the cap table. But the reason we're talking about this now is that always trying to find like different ways this current market conditions are impacting startups, kind of like beyond the obvious. Of course, everyone knows it's harder to raise. Companies don't have as much capital, don't have as much runway. But next year seems like it's going to be pretty rough. And when do people fight? When they're stressed about money, whether it's a business, whether it's a relationship, it's all the same. One founder wants to sell, one founder doesn't, one founder wants to pivot again, the other founder doesn't. It just seems like we're going to potentially see more of these more messy founder breakups next year because people are just going to have outside pressures. And the story, um, the founder I spoke to for this piece, Rosie Nguyen, who founded a startup called Fan House, which has since been purchased, and she left because of said purchase. Her co-founder and one of their lead investors on the board decided to sell the company and pivot to AI. Not that the company was doing poorly financially, but it could definitely do a lot better if they built in that space. The creator, It was a creator economy company, and some of the general market excitement about creator economy had passed. And we all know investors are excited about AI. So they decided to pivot. And as a founder who is committed to the company because it was in the creator economy space, she herself as a creator has made money off the platform for her own personal life decided to leave and it was very messy. She ended up with no equity wow. in the company at all. That's awful. Yeah. So it just seems like something we might see a lot more of next year as companies are faced with really hard decisions just in the market conditions and they're bound to not always agree. Yeah. I I had seen a tweet from um, an investor who said within his own portfolio, I think it was that this year he saw like three founder breakups and, and, and it's a smaller fund. So Three is significant. I think you're right that there's probably a lot more of this happening than we even realize. I, I know there have been many times where I'll I'll interview someone and I'll say, I'll read a previously written article and I'll say, oh, you co-founded this company with so-and-so. Because like in the previous article, there's a picture of like two people smiling. And then all of a sudden, right. I'm just talking to one person and there's no mention of the other. 
And so very often they're like, oh, yeah, well, we parted ways or so-and-so decided to move on. So I, I think it does happen a lot. But um, to your point, what's going on now, it's not so, so much just, oh, okay, we've grown apart. But there's just a lot of external pressures that might be contributing to more founder breakups. Yeah. And there are ways that founders can... It sounds weird to prepare to break up, but in the same way that some people get married with a prenup, knowing that they'll hopefully never use it. And then sometimes they do never use it. But there are ways to sort of set up how long someone has to be at the company to like keep their equity. And like, of course, it's easier to do these conversations when you're really just like getting stuff off the ground. But if founders are feel pretty confident now, nothing seems bad, it wouldn't hurt for them to just, you know, have a conversation about it, maybe talk to their investors, investors. I talked to Jenny Fielding, she said, VCs are always sort of happy to help, especially on the planning side. It's harder when the mess has already started because they obviously have to do what's best for the company, not the individual founders themselves. But yeah, people can prep for this, hoping they'll never use it. And that's not time wasted by any means. Yeah, it's, it's weird to me that in uh, the American economy, at least, this is my cultural context, so I'll just speak from kind of where I sit, that you know, purchasing insurance is not considered to be inviting destruction on your house or auto, right. but getting a prenup pre-marriage is considered to be non-romantic and, and, and almost like you're a quitter before you start. Bullshit. Just for the sake of transparency, I straight up told my spouse before I got married that if she wanted to prenup me, that's fine. She declined. But I mean, like, it wouldn't have hurt my feelings. Mm -hmm. You know, I just yeah. it just seems intelligent. But Becca, the thing that I'm struggling with here is that VCs don't like to invest in solo founders. And VCs are also therefore setting up these companies to have founder issues. And it seems to be kind of like a like an odd tension between the advice and then how it kind of plays out. No, for sure. I mean, there are so many instances like that in um, venture in general, because I know that's another thing that comes up with solo GPs as well. They'll say they'll pitch LPs and say, they'll ask, oh, well, what if you got hit by a bus? And they're like, okay, like, let's actually think about that. It's much more common for similar with startup founders for two general partners to get together have never worked before together before and have it not work out and have the fund not raise fund too, or have something break up and that happens on the fun side too. So it's like, it is interesting, but then they don't want to back a solo GP. So it, there is, it's one of those fun conundrums where it's kind of feels like the founder always loses. All right. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the hit by a bus problem because I'm going to try to connect a couple of dots here. Uh, Marianne, who is terrified of self-driving cars is therefore in favor of more founders being hit by buses. Also, why are, <laughs> no, it didn't work. Damn it. I was, <laughs> crap. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So, so trying to bring in like the why are so many buses hitting founders thing? Because we always use the van or bus analogy and then self-driving. It didn't land. No, it was just yeah, funny, but it was funny because like I would never want anyone to get hit by a bus. So just to hear it actually made me giggle. Marianne is probably the single nicest person that I know, um, just straight up. So no, she would never want that. Uh I, I will say though, you can't resolve the tension between solo founders being not as enticing to investors or solo investors being less enticing to, to LPs and hoping for a, a no breakup situation. What we're really talking about here is humans are humans and it's going to be a little bit messy, but I'm glad the conversation is out there at least. And Becca, thank you for reporting on this. It's definitely made me think quite a lot. No, no problem. And I know we don't have time to dive into the other piece that I wrote this week, but it was about planning. Founders should plan for their own succession right away, too. It's just the beauty of planning. I'm the child of engineers. I love a plan. Uh. And I think everyone else should plan for these things, too. And of course, like I said, if you don't use it, 
that's not wasted time that you made the plan. Absolutely. By not. any means. No. How in depth is your current household financial planning spreadsheet, Becca? Oh, I'm not a spreadsheet person, but like I plan dinner by what needs to be done first because that's the critical path, which I know is an engineering term. So that's, that's how my parents that's, used to that's, do it. That's amazing. That's amazing. All right. Well, listen, guys, uh, we got to run, but Equity is back three times a week with our Monday kickoff show, our Wednesday interview show, and this, our Friday news roundup. Becca and Marianne, an absolute treat. Thank you both so very, very much. And everyone, we'll see you in a couple of days. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.